Good morning. This is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Thursday the 16th of April and we're still in lockdown. Today, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE, the government body which advises on, well, emergencies, will meet to give its recommendation on whether or not the lockdown should be lifted and when. There has been near universal briefing in the press uh, that we should expect the lockdown not to be lifted today. And while there are signs that the lockdown has been working at slowing the rate of transmission, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, CMO, uh, has said that we are still just approaching or entering the peak period. And government ministers have praised the sacrifices of the British people with strong indications that further such sacrifices are to be expected. Whitty has said, rightly in my view, that it would be pretty foolish to see the lockdown succeeding and then simply remove it and risk undoing the good it has done and thus storing up, after its incubation period, a raft of new infections and another surge period. Pressure to lift the lockdown, however, is growing, especially from the business lobby, but especially from the right-wing press. If you were to pop over to the Telegraph website, or worse, pick up a paper copy, you'd find it riven with calls to lift the lockdown. In between, of course, praise for the former Telegraph columnist, now nominally at least, in number 10, but in reality, convalescing at Chequers. Perhaps not the wisest decision for a paper whose readership skews well into the ranks of retirees, but perhaps a reflection of the priorities of its billionaire owners. So I suspect we'll see the lockdown extended at the press conference later today, the kind of thing that might once have been announced in Parliament were it sitting. The real question is how long it's likely to last for. While the CMO has speculated in the past that it might well extend to June, uh, with possible waves of lockdowns and public social distancing enforced thereafter as we deal with waves of the virus until a vaccine is developed, it's unlikely that so long an extension will be announced today. Press consensus seems to be that SAGE will recommend a, day, a date sometime in early May for the next review of the lockdown, perhaps the 7th or the 9th, with measures to stay in place until then. There are also questions about whether it will recommend the government enact more stringent measures on personal liberties to exercise and go outside as warmer weather starts to hit. I suspect that is actually less likely. Personally, my birthday is on the 20th of May and I'd like nothing more than to throw a huge party and do things that now seem scandalous like see people in the flesh and gather them together. But I suspect at this point it would be unwise for me to book a room. But what is SAGE? The government has referred throughout the pandemic to the scientific advice it gets from the group, frequently as cover for its shifts in policy or excuses for its failures to act. In truth, we know relatively little about it other than that it's chaired by the government's chief scientist, Patrick Valance, and the CMO also sits on it. But it does not routinely disclose either its membership or its advice. Valance has said this is because it's important to insulate members of the group from public pressure or more sinister pressure from lobbying groups. Few of those who sit on it have made public their membership, but some, uh, like uh, Jeremy Farrar, director of the Wellcome Trust, who said on Sunday uh, that the UK could have the highest coronavirus death rate in Europe. Valence has assured us, however, that members of SAGE and the expert groups come from over 20 different institutions and have the following areas of expertise, molecular evolution, epidemiology, clinical science and practice, modelling emerging infectious diseases, behavioural science, statistics, virology and microbiology. 
And it has made some moves to publish some of its minutes and papers, those relating to physical distancing and the lockdown, uh, what now seems a lifetime ago on the 26th of March. But those are at least a month out of date now, and there don't appear to be plans to release any more. It's pretty clear that government direction and choice in handling of the pandemic has changed as a result of the new modelling, for instance, released earlier that month uh, in the middle of March. But it's pretty clear that the government's response was actually at least in part prompted by growing public disquiet over Britain's strategy seeming to be so different to that pursued elsewhere. Its apparent abandonment of the herd immunity strategy, the eventual admission that mass testing would in fact be necessary, and the current review about whether wearing face masks in public would be a good idea. But at present, advice coming out of SAGE is a bit of a black box. You know, you have evidence about what's going on with the pandemic around the world, that goes in on one side. Government decisions come out of the other side, but we've got very little idea about what goes on in between. It is a perfect setup for excuse making on the government's part because it can rely on this bit of the process that we don't get to see to bolster its claims that it's only following the science and the decision so that it makes can't be made in any other way. That's just, I think, inadequate to the kind of political decisions which are now being made and which are extraordinary and so very far-reaching. And how is it possible to apply any kind of scrutiny to these at all? There are three reasons, I think, that knowing this stuff matters. The first is that we know that there have been shifts and changes in policy. So when do they come about? Why? How? We know that public pressure and public disquiet has been a significant part of them and where that modelling has been released publicly, as with that Imperial College model in mid-March, it's produced significant shifts in government. So does that not suggest that we need to see quite a lot more about what's going on? The second is that the makeup of SAGE matters. Most of the minutes that have been released are from the government's, uh, from the committee's subgroups on modelling and on behavioural science. And are those the two groups which are driving the government response? If so, where is the public health element to this? From what we know, there appear to be few public health experts involved in SAGE decisions. Don't they have a significant role to play? Or have they recently come onto the committee? Is the makeup of SAGE the right makeup for this crisis? Lastly, there's the matter of public confidence. So far, the public has been largely willing to go along with recommendations and restrictions, which ultimately come uh, from advice from SAGE. But retaining that confidence depends on retaining confidence in the body itself, which to my mind is best done by making as public and available as possible all the data on which these decisions uh, are being made and which they rest, and as part of the necessary process by which democratic governments make and justify their decisions. Now, Patrick Valance has already pushed back on these suggestions, saying that, well, the most senior members of SAGE can be scrutinised and questioned by the press at these press conferences. But that relies on two articles of faith – One, that such officials don't also feel compelled to act politically, something I think that is in significant questions, uh, under significant question when you see people like the deputy CMO do things like brush off suggestions from the WHO that we actually do need to test. And two, that the nation's press and broadcast media are capable of asking the right questions and following them up to the level actually needed. If you have such faith, well, you're definitely a more optimistic person than me. So we will hear a bit more about the lockdown extension later today, and there has been much noise made that lockdown restrictions are lifting elsewhere. For instance, Germany will ease its restrictions on schools and some shops. Belgium has extended its lockdown, but is reopening garden centres and DIY stores. But there is a danger in too easy comparison. Most of the states now lifting their lockdowns are ones that lock down harder and earlier than Britain, and many of which are now only lifting to more or less the level that we're at here. 
Angela Merkel said yesterday, we must learn how to live with the virus as long as there is no vaccine or medicine against it. That's true. And one way to make it tolerable is transparency. Will we get it? All right, just a brief something. Dystopia. So welcome to the American apocalypse. There are lines outside the gun shops after they've just reopened, having been deemed essential businesses. There are bootleg mask sellers on the street corners. Hello everyone, my name is Liam Young and I'm a speculative architect and director and I'm here under lockdown in my studio in downtown Los Angeles. So welcome to the American apocalypse. There are lines outside the gun shops after they've just reopened, having been deemed essential businesses. There are bootleg mask sellers on the street corners and the entire film industry here in LA has been put indefinitely on pause. So it means a town of predominantly freelance creatives uh, can no longer pay the rent uh, or buy groceries. So LA, so often the setting for so many sci-fi films is now a live action dystopian film playing out in real time. But for a town of so many world builders and storytellers, I'm sure the scripts for a new genre of virus fictions or Wi-Fi are already in the works. And perhaps that is the real opportunity of this present moment to imagine the potential fictions and futures and to prototype the new worlds that we all want to be a part of when the viral cloud lifts. So in many ways, we must recognize that there is no return to normal because our default setting is what created these conditions for collapse in the first place. So thank you, and I'll see you all after the end of the world. And that was Liam Young, who is a speculative architect and director who teaches at the Master of Science Fiction and Entertainment course at uh, South California Institute of Architecture in LA, uh, speaking to launch a virtual design festival just a couple of days ago. And dystopia seems much on people's minds these days, including around the left, as people sit and think about and respond to the pandemic crisis around us. It's certainly a tempting mode of thought, as we see economic charts plunge and falter, exponential curves explode, shops shuttered, and become almost deliriously familiar with every nook and crevice of the four walls around us day by bloody day. And we fear that the government is failing and failing to tell us it's failing, or that the official press seems hypnotised by the health of one man. There's a lot of fear about. But if it's dystopia, it's not equally distributed. Within any individual country, it breaks down differently on class lines. Between those still forced to work, even in non-essential jobs because they can't work at home and fear for their employment, versus those able to work at home or who may even find some freedom in lockdown that they hadn't before. Between those with functioning internet and ease of navigation of the digital world and those without. Between those with stable homes and those very much without or for for whom home is a place of fear or violence, or simply which doesn't exist at all. Between those, say, with time and those without, or those of us for whom the crisis is still far off, happening maybe in hospitals and care homes, and those for whom it is very much up close. And then there is the global dimension, between those countries with functioning health systems and enormous resources, and those without, between effectively the developed and developing world, between global north and global south, And perhaps in that context, sometimes speaking of dystopia can look a little vain and self-indulgent. But the dystopian instinct, which I think of as an instinct particularly of the post-war 20th and post-crisis 21st centuries, is definitely there and it's definitely at play. 
We can see it not only in the way that we process what's actually going on in the immediate wake of the crisis, and as Young said in that clip about lines outside gun shops speaking to something deep and fearful and hostile in the political psyche, but also in the way that we talk about even happily embrace some of the solutions posited. And we might be speaking about systems of medical surveillance in response to the crisis, biological surveillance and testing, medical passports or longer on-off impositions of social distancing with friendships mediated more than ever before through the flat bling of a digital screen uh, or we might look to the virus as it tears through some of the refugee camps the prisons of the stateless uh, as just a vision of a segmented and deeply unequal future like all dystopias understanding the present moment as dystopic says something about our own fears it brings sharply into focus things we value or things we fear slipping away from us humanity is a gregarious animal said Karl Marx yes something we realise as we police our two-metre boundary and wonder at the sheer insufficiency of our virtual substitutes for presence and affection. And the fear, sometimes shapeless and formless, and maybe even much more general than really what is prompted by the crisis itself, which seems to underlie much of this. And here is what one of the great 20th century practitioners of dystopia had to say about fear. He said, Fear, my good friends, fear is the basis and foundation of modern life. Fear of the much-touted technology which while it raises our standard of living, increases the probability of our violently dying. Fear of the science, which takes away, with the one hand, even more than what it so profusely gives with the other. Fear of the demonstrably fatal institutions for which, in our suicidal loyalty, we are ready to kill and die. Fear of the great men whom we have raised by popular acclaim to a power which they use inevitably to murder and enslave us. Fear of the war we don't want, and yet do everything we can to bring about. That was Aldous Huxley on fear in Ape and Essence essay from 1949. Uh, of course, there's a very long and interesting tradition of political theory about fear, which stretches at least back to Hobbes. I've written about it before and I won't bore you with, <laughs> with all the details here. But Hobbes is the great theorist of fear, both in the state itself and its uses in producing awe and submission, as well as the fundamental driving force which pushes, pushes us into making a state and driving politics itself in the first place. But this is slightly different kind of fear. This is the kind of fear which emerges at the other end, which emerges from the very way we do life itself, the very way, way we live, the fear which arises as we look at the way we conduct our lives and our societies, even as we don't any longer seem to have any of the levers to pull to change its direction. I think this can reveal something about why the dystopian response comes so easy in contemporary politics and culture. Dystopia isn't something merely bad, it's not just some bad or tyrannous state, but so often it's a failed utopia. Huxley's most famous dystopian novel was about just that, about utopian dark sides. Uh, no wonder, of course, that this was so common in the post-war period. Uh, but what kind of utopia is failing around us now? It seems to me that some of the basic premises of economic and social life under neoliberalism, especially its individualism or its hollowing out of the state, its reliance on market principles, has always had an element of the utopian to them. The perfection of a kind in human beings was what it hankered after, even if individual, market-oriented, uh, free of commitments or even uh, thinking which might pull against the logic of commerce. Even in that failure, its, its logic is exposed as ghouls line up on the TV telling us we've got to chow down on death to get back to work. There's a great deal, I think, about contemporary society which becomes clear if you think of it as a failed utopia. But here's a note of caution. 
the dystopia industry, which produces films and so on about dystopian worlds and especially heroic individuals in dystopian worlds, it's not always our friend. I think it can emphasise too strongly the personal and individual desire to survive, stressing the idea that such a collapse is in some degree inevitable, and the most one can hope for is simply to see the other side of the crisis, to engage in the kind of tedious, individual heroic central to such fictions. There's something almost consolatory about them. Yes, there is nothing you can do to influence history. Yes, things are falling apart, but maybe you can simply endure long enough to see it happen, and see through the crisis, and see the horrors that come after. Or perhaps you can come and see this film, resign to things coming so bad, and sit through it with a little apocalyptic frisson. What if we were to take things the other way, perhaps, and use all this tense and turbulent dystopianism as an opportunity to turn it back against conditions as they currently are? If we were to push back against the most pernicious and most permanent double lie of the failed utopia for something better, that double lie that there is no agency in history, that it's all just a process initiated far above you and which only ever happens to you, and that human beings are ultimately only ever out for themselves, especially in a true crisis. But is that actually true? Does it seem entirely true to you if you look around at the mutual aid groups or even something so simple as the applause protests on Thursday evenings, the pots and pans, the simple gestures? What if? What if? That's the central start and premise of a new utopia. All right, in more news as the day rolls out, scandals about care homes are likely diverging through the day as both lack of PPE, but especially the number of deaths in them gain more and more attention. Meanwhile, Matt Hancock somewhat bizarrely launched a badge for people who work in care, which says care on it as some kind of response to the crisis. That wouldn't be adequate in itself, It's even less adequate because it was first launched a year ago in March 2019. Tit. Cabinet meets at 11, chaired by Dominic Raab. Cobra at half three, and we can expect the lockdown announcement after that. The G7 also meets this afternoon by video. One wonders if anyone will say anything to Donald Trump about his defunding of the World Health Organization. Kirstama continues his demand for an exit strategy from the lockdown, which I can't help feel is a little misjudged, and the strategy politically remains completely opaque to me. It's true that no government strategy exists, but no such strategy really exists anywhere, and the government will back back or will back back bromides about following scientific advice. Uh, or, or if it's smart, it would say, uh, 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 you know, there are other countries further along than us, so we'll learn from what happens as they lift their lockdowns. And all this is brand new territory for everyone. The only reason they might not do that is, well, you might ask questions about why they didn't do such learning a few weeks ago at the start of all this. Meanwhile, the real problem areas around testing and around PPE, both of which are actually going to be essential uh, to any actual exit strategy, well, they don't seem to get a look in, they don't seem to be emphasised, despite there being actual urgent crises affecting people's lives right now. So there must be something I'm missing here. Maybe I'm just not forensic enough. All right, more tomorrow. As ever, do be in touch on james at navarromedia.com. Otherwise, stay safe, stay home, wash your hands and moisturise them too. But don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>